What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Shirley Halperin, executive editor of music, and my guest today is Cara Diaguardi, Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, music publisher, former artist, scholar, advocate for creators, two-season American Idol judge, mom, wife, and daughter. She's a seasoned talent scout too, with an impressive track record of having identified and invested in hit songs early on. That the letters A and R sit side by side in Kara's name may be a coincidence, but it's a fortuitous one since it's what she does best. She can hear something and see its future. Today, her company Art House Entertainment has equity in hits ranging from artists like Bruno Mars, Carrie Underwood, Jason Derulo, Rihanna, Maroon 5, Justin Bieber, Halsey, and Florida Georgia Line, among many others. In fact, as this podcast airs, Art House and Atlantic Records artist Gail has just hit number one on pop radio for her inescapable hit, ABCDEFU, a song that Kara helped workshop for over two years. Kara's written a few smashes herself. Maybe you've heard of Rich Girl by Gwen Stefani, or Ain't No Other Man by Christina Aguilera, or Sober by Pink. According to Art House, Kara's songs have appeared on albums totaling 160 million in sales. After winning accolades for her work as a creative, Cara Diaguardi's career took a turn in 2009 when she was hired to be a judge on American Idol alongside original TV trio Simon Cowell, Randy Jackson, and Paula Abdul. Then on Fox, it was a ratings monster. It was starting to show some growing pains, and Kara, not knowing much about the show, admittedly stepped onto a stage she wasn't entirely prepared for. 
even if she did strut across it in a bikini, live with 20 million people watching in 2010. She talks about these experiences, as well as being a woman and an entrepreneur in a male-dominated field, her advocacy for songwriters, and her nonprofit, Inspired Nation, which hosts singing competitions benefiting youth-focused charities, not unlike where Kara discovered Gail. She also discusses her views on the relationship between technology and music creation, which she's tackling head-on in a new app called Bridge, which connects creators to create collaborators. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Strictly Business. Here's our talk with Cara Diaguardi. You did have aspirations of becoming an artist, right? Like, uh, you know, it's not like you grew up saying, I want to be a songwriter. You wanted to be an artist, correct? Well, I grew up kind of renouncing that I was creative or could sing because I felt pressure from my my dad mostly to perform at, at moments when I really didn't want to perform. I just wanted to like eat dinner and not be, you know, hey, you get up and sing the national anthem. I'd be like, what, what, you know, <laughs> freaking out. Because I think, you know, early on, I was, I was trying to be what every kid is trying to be, make their parents proud and be, be perfect. And, you know, and really, those are very unattainable goals. And I, I feel like I could never do it the right way, or I was so harsh on myself when I sang that it was very unenjoyable. And so I sort of renounced it and was like, you know what? I don't need to sing. I don't need to do this. I don't want anyone to control me. I'm done with that. I'm just going to be like everybody else. I'm going to go to a good school. I'll be a lawyer. And that's that. But I got pretty sick in, in my, uh, I'd say, sophomore year of college where I was starting to get depressed and really I started realizing that I couldn't take on the path that I was on. It just, it didn't feel authentic. 
And I just decided it was probably my third year at Duke. I was like, I'm going to be an artist. (laughs) Um, I had no idea what that meant, but I graduated college and I was like, I'm going to be in a garage band to my parents and who were not thrilled with that. (laughs) And yeah, as you can imagine, and just like started doing it, you know, going out there gigging and uh, a friend of mine didn't get a job uh, or, or, or got a job at billboard and didn't want it and passed it on to me. And I was like, you know what, this is great. So get my parents kind of off my ass and I can be in the music business in terms of like learning and understanding it. So it was perfect in a weird way. It felt like divine intervention or something. So how did you develop as a songwriter? Well, I think one of the main things that happened uh, was I realized early on that no one was going to give me their songs. Like professional songwriters were not going to be like, okay, she's the perfect person to give my songs to. She lives with her mother and father. <laughs> she's kind of 15 pounds overweight. Her hair is horrible, but yeah, let me give her my song. She'll probably get a deal. So I was kind of like, fuck it. I just got to write my own songs. And I just started writing songs and they were awful. They were so bad. I can't even tell you how bad they were, they were. but I kept doing it you know, and, and I started to open up more and more on my music and talking more about what I felt as opposed to what I thought everyone else felt. And I finally got to a place where I put together a demo and walked over to my neighbor, Larry Flick at Billboard and was like, Hey, I have a friend and I'm kind of wondering what you think of her. Oh my God, the classic. (laughs) And so he was like, girl, let me hear that tape. And so you know, every day I'd have to go by him. I was like kind of scared because I thought he was going to say, oh, your friend sucks. Or, that was the worst tape ever. But he found me one day and he's like, I, I really like these songs. Who's your friend? And I was like, it's me in my like easy spirit pumps <laughs> and my, you know, really bad hair. And I, he's like, shut up, girl. This is not you. And I'm like, I promise you it's me. And he's like, oh my God. And so then he introduced me to this publisher at BMG And, you know, I was a scrappy person. I was like, whatever, if this guy wants me to write with this person, I'll go write with them. And anything you could throw my way, I would do. I was just open to anything. And that really served me as a songwriter because I think a lot of people look at credits, you know, well, what did this person do? Or what did that person do? And I'm not writing with them because they haven't done anything. And I don't think that's the way to do it. I think that you can have chemistry with someone and together you write this great thing. So I, I really, I've always been um, sort of adventurous in my co-writing. You know, if someone could find me, I was like, yeah, I'll write with you. Let's try it. <laughs> and it's, it's actually worked out a lot for me where it was somebody who really wasn't very known or mm. someone who was starting out. And you know, just kind of approaching it with that, that wonder and that sense of fun was something actually some of the best co-writes I ever, I ever had. So smart because then you, you're developing all these relationships and these tentacles are going out, but you're the sort of like, you know, you're the, you're the big get for them. Probably they're like, Oh, I'm going to be writing with Cara Diaguardi. And then it actually ends up expanding your network. I think I looked at it differently. I I feel like I never really believed the hype. 
for mm. me. I always kind of saw the magic in it, that it was just how ridiculous that you could get in the room with somebody who you've never met and create something. And it, it, for me, it was more about the work and the hustle and making things happen. And you know, not being like, well, they're, they're, they're getting in the room with me. Like to me, I was still that insecure songwriter who wasn't quite sure um, how she even did what she did and really believed in her heart. She wasn't even the best out there, but it was more the fact that I told my story in a very unique way. And I had, I had something to say, you know, it was, I wasn't always in the best relationship and my songs talked about standing up for yourself and, and getting through that and not being a victim, mm. being empowered to, to pull yourself out of it. And that really, for me, has always been, I would say, what I've been about is that no matter what's happened in my life, whether it's been, you know, good or bad, or I, I realize that it can all be in my songs it can all be something that will people will hopefully relate to. And, um, you know, my kind of life mantra is no matter what gets thrown my way, I believe I can come out of it. And so I think that was a theme that ran through a bunch of my songs. Like, you can do me wrong, but I'm going to survive. I've always felt that you have to live your life in order to create. And that if you are all you're doing is in the studio, and, you know, getting home and sleeping and then going back to the studio and you don't have a life, it's hard to really create anything that's relevant that really speaks to um, the listeners. You know, right. some of the greatest songs came out of real experiences. So I, can, I find at times that L.A. can be quite toxic for songwriters because they feel that there's this imaginary clock that's running and people tend to be like, well, I got on this record and I got this cut and I got this. And it's it's not the supportive kind of environment that Nashville can be where people are, you know, everyone's a songwriter. Everyone understands the hustle and they sort of also are more supportive of each other in the way that they. And it's more like, yeah, I heard your song. That's awesome. It was such a good song. Like they they admire the craft and they admire what it takes to have a big song. And so sometimes with my roster, I, I feel like I'm telling them, stop writing on the weekends. Stop doing that. Go out and live your life. Do not double book yourself. You're stressing yourself out and you've lost the fun. You've lost the joy. You have to go back to the joy and not worry about how many cuts you're getting and what everybody else is doing, you know? And don't go in a room and, and, and lose your voice because you believe that, you know, you're supposed to be doing it this way if you're gonna get a cut. So I, I really feel sometimes that I'm sort of telling my writers, like, you gotta go back to when you were first writing in your bedroom. Go back to that moment when, when you would come home from a day at school and be like, you know, that girl broke my heart. Wow. Wow. And the, you learned all this from experience yourself, I assume, right? I learned it all from that. I learned it all from self-discovery too, because I think there's a certain amount of self-discovery that has to happen for you to be a good songwriter. You have to really understand what you're feeling and why, and it's your job to feel deeply. I think Gail is a really good example of it because her song, that A, B, C, D, E, F, U, was based on a real experience. 
And I think why it's resonated with people is though there's a craft part in it. It's like everyone's wanted to tell their boyfriend or girlfriend at some time, you know what? Fuck you. You know, everyone but your dog can fuck off that you ever introduced me to. Like, you know, like, I don't want to see your best friend. Yep. I don't want to see your the car that you drive around. That You know, I don't want to see any your of Your sister it. or your mom. Yeah, yeah, I'm done with you all. Everyone <laughs> but the dog. Like, I always loved your dog and I, you know, wanted to steal him. But yeah. I wanted to ask you about Art House. When did Art House start? Was it 2000, 2000? 2001? It was like, yeah, it was like 20 years ago. And it started, can I tell you what we started on? Which is, you're going to be like, what? Please. What the heck? Um, so it was sort of, Art House started because I needed, you know, it was, it was administering my own like music and copyrights. And then my partner, Stephen Finfer was like, hey, uh, we can buy a piece of this, this Britney Spears copyright. And I was like, okay, what's that entail? He's like, all right, for this amount of money, we can buy this piece of, of a Britney Spears cut and then we'll own it, we'll publish it. And, I, and it was like, I don't know if it was 40 grand or 50 grand. I don't even remember what it was. And so we kind of were about, you know, Stephen was, was helping me in my own career, you know, managing me. And then we had Art House. And then, then when Art House really took off as something more than just about me was when, I was not getting credit in the room with a lot of producers that I was working with, where I was, you know, writing the song, all the lyrics, all the melodies to mostly everything. Sometimes it was tracks. I was laying down the vocals, vocal producing the artist, and they were making, you know, 40 or 50 grand a track, all the points, plus getting um, the song that I usually pitched and got cut. And I was sort of fed up with it. You know, they didn't want to hear what I had to say. Um, they were like, you're not a producer. You're not this, you're not that. And I was like, okay, you're right. You know what? There are so many talented people out there. I'm going to go find them and I'm going to go get our songs cut. I'll write songs with them and then they'll co-produce with me. And not only will they get like higher profile artists, but they'll actually become, you know, well-known producers overnight. And that's exactly what I did. Um, whether it was Mitch Allen or Greg Wells or, you know, a bunch of people. And, they were awesome. They were more talented at times than some of the producers that were out there that were known. And they were happy to do this together. And then the best part of it was they didn't have to just work with me. I wanted them to work with other people. I didn't want to just work with them. I wanted to be free to write with whoever I felt creative with. And that's something that's always sort of been frustrating to me with some of these, you know, boutique operations is they tend to only want their writers to write with their writers. Right. But, but what happens when that's not a creative moment for those people? Like they have to be free to do what they need to do. Um, and it can't just be about, oh, I just want to hold on to the copyright. It was an opportunity for me to really champion talent out there. Um, and that became our next sort of version of Art House. And then later it was about just signing people that had nothing to do with me writing uh, like we do now because I don't write songs. Right, right. So at Art House, we're talking about songs like Bruno Mars, Just the Way You Are in Grenade, uh, CeeLo Green's Forget You, Demi Lovato's Heart Attack, Jason Derulo, Want to Want Me, and uh, Halsey's Graveyard, Just a Few. So... Art House has pieces of all of these songs because of writers that Art House represents, correct? 
Right. So like, you know, the last version of us is signing more on the artist side and, you know, Ingrid Andress or um, John Bellion, who's, you know, just an incredible, these are incredible creatives that I have been with for, you know, a number of years. And really they didn't, I didn't write with them. Right. They were, I didn't sign them to be like, oh, let me get on your songs now. You know, it was more like, you're amazing. I, I wish I could turn a phrase like that. Mm. And I, I'm really drawn to people who I feel are just so incredible at what they do and that as a creator, I'm in awe of them. Okay, so that's the evolution of Art House. Is it a publishing house? Is it a record label? Like what? Is it just like a music company? How would you describe it to someone who, who's not familiar with like the ins and outs of music? I would say it's been it's been different things over the years and we've tried to change with the business but in a way that felt very natural for us and organic and I think when I started teaching at Berkeley I started to really fall in love with young talent um and people who who really hadn't made that um crossover into the industry and that were needing help mm. and some of them like Ingrid turned out to be, you know, just great artists. And I, I think that I did whatever I had to do to help them do what their vision for themselves were. So I naturally was like, Oh, okay. You're an artist. How are we going to have, how's this going to happen? How are we going to make this happen? So a large part of it was like, if I owned the publishing you know, in order to spend money on videos and putting out masters and things like that, that wasn't part of a publishing deal. That was another, you know, financial uh, arrangement. So part of it was to be able to recoup the additional monies that I put out to help them, you know, be artists. And then, you know, when I, when I met Gail, it was, you know, she was, she was young and just incredibly talented and wanted the artist thing was, was just obvious. So I think we even had that in her, her initial deal was to develop her as that. So it really came out of, uh, out of the, the, uh, an organic place of really taking each creator and looking at them and saying, you know, what do you want to do? How can we help you? How can we get you to where you want to go? And, and maybe you don't even know where you want to go right now. And that's okay. We'll address that along the way. You were very busy in the 2000s, very, very busy, um, <laughs> including <laughs> including capping off the decade with um, two seasons on American Idol, uh, seasons eight and nine. You also did a reality show called Platinum Hit, which was sort of like a predecessor to, to Songland, right, Kara? Right. Mm -hmm. um, it was all about like how to, to write a platinum hit, a song, a smash song. So what did you take away from those experiences of being on television? I really had no understanding of television when I joined American Idol. And I hadn't really watched the show that much because my whole life felt like American Idol. That's all I did was listen to people singing and songs. And I really didn't know what I was getting into. I was probably quite naive and um, just sort of going with the flow on it. And I quickly realized, okay, I just walked into this political landmine, you know, like this sort of 
crazy world of um, personalities and production houses. And, you know, I, I was a creator, man. I just took my feelings into the studio and wrote about them. It was like very pure. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not a, a chess player or somebody who was into strategy of getting ahead or, you know, anything like that in that way. So I think that I was kind of put on the show as the first, you know, moment of change, like, okay, we're going to put this girl in. She's from the industry. She's not a celebrity. So we probably won't have, you know, a lot of problems with, she won't be a diva. (laughs) She's just like a songwriter. And so, you know, I just tried to do what I was asked to do. I didn't, I, I didn't know much about being a character. I didn't know much about like one liners. You know, I was wordy. I was verbose. I was like an Italian girl. Like we just speak a lot. So it was a lot coming at me um, very quickly. But what I did take away from it was one, it was an incredible experience of seeing the inside of something that I would never have seen. I got to meet a lot of cool people. I got to really test myself in ways that, you know, I'd always been fearful of the stage and being live was just like, I mean, two days before every show, I, I was in a state of panic. So it really pushed me and it showed me, you know, there were definitely things that I wish I'd been better at, but like I did it. I, I survived it and I was better for it because it made me a better A&R executive. It made me really have to, in the moment, tell somebody what I liked and what I didn't like. And I, I couldn't hide behind a manager. I couldn't hide behind a lawyer. And I really got to see the effect of, of that on a young person, you know? Um, It also made me very angry at times that I couldn't really mentor those kids, that I wasn't allowed to really tell them what I thought and how they could improve. It made me angry that a lot of these kids would come through and give their time and their talent only to be dropped off at their their jobs again without any further mentoring. And that's why I started a nonprofit. We have to give something back to them. I'm thinking back about that moment when you famously strutted in a bikini on American Idol. 12 years later, how do you view that decision? The way I view it is in I I did it because they they were going to give money to my charity. I would never have done it for like a moment of hey, check out my body or, you know, making that girl feel awkward or whatever it was. Um, I certainly did not, uh, you know, <laughs> think that I had some incredible body and it was going to show it on TV. I, they had pressured me for so many weeks leading up to it. It was like, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. And part of it was, you know, it was a ratings decision and they felt I needed to take myself less seriously. I needed to poke fun. And, you know, Idol was about entertaining and fun. And I, the only way I could do it was if there was something good that came out of it. If I could say, you know what, I'm going to do this, but then you guys have to do this because I cannot do this if it's just about TV ratings. So I, you know, it, it was, I have to say it was one of the scariest moments of my life. I, I was so scared the dress wasn't going to open that Mm -hmm. I was going to like pee myself. Like I didn't know what was going to happen. But yeah, I mean, you know, there was so much, 
how can I say this? I mean, the music industry, the me too for music. I don't even think we've touched upon that as an industry. I mean, when I was coming up, there wasn't a woman around anywhere to be seen. There was um, Diane Warren, who was, you know, maybe uh, 10 years ahead of me and was iconic. And Linda Perry, I had no access to them. I was always in the studio with men. And, and I have, you know, horror stories about some of those things that happened. It was never, it was never easy. I felt like I had to make the decision of if I report this or do something, then I'm going to lose this moment in my life, in my career that, that is important to me. I want to show people, I have something to say. I want to show people that my music counts. And, and that moment of, of, of the, the idol thing, it, it was sort of, I knew that I had, I had to, to listen to what they were asking me to do, but ultimately it was my decision. So I can't be like just saying, oh, I blame them right. for doing this, but I had to kind of justify it in my own head. And I was like, all right, as long as you're giving money to a charity, I'll do it. But you better say you're giving the money to the charity too. Cause I don't want people to think that I, you know, would go out there and just show my body. Cause you know, you guys asked me to, or I, I feel like this would be a great moment because it, it wasn't a great personal moment. <laughs> you know, it's not what I stand for in life. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Cara Diaguardi. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Cara Giaguardi. So in January, it was announced that Simon Fuller has formed the first ever TikTok group. And I was remembering that when Idol first launched, it was criticized as being a shortcut 
in the music industry as opposed to like the paying of dues that most new artists go through. TikTok literally seemed like a fraction of that time you know like what took you a season to develop now is like like tiktok it's a matter of seconds um how is artist development viewed today in light of these you know platforms that can instantly elevate somebody i think there's a real opportunity for people who really know how to develop talent for me, I, my, I am so contrarian at times to what people are doing. Like they're looking at metrics. I'm never looking at metrics. I'm looking at true talent in the sense that someone has something to say. They are adamant about saying it and also have an incredible voice or can play an instrument really well. And it's just this package. I'm always looking for these people to help. They just don't know how to get there. They don't completely see their vision in front of them, but it's there and I know how to pull it out of them or help pull it out of them. It's like boot camp for an artist. So I think that when you just are looking at TikTok and these platforms, as an industry, you're going after people when they're recognized, right? But you don't know what's underneath. You don't know the foundation. You don't know the songs. You don't know how they write. You don't know anything about them. So now you're in this frenzy where you're trying to sign them with every single other label. And you're having to tell them that you love everything about them and they're amazing and they're this and they're that. And then you sign the deal. And then it's like, okay, what do we have? You know, because at that moment you couldn't be like, hey, let me see you perform. Let me see, what are your other songs? Oh, uh, these songs are not so great. We'll worry about this later. We'll just sign, get the, get the deal signed. Then we'll put them out with every, every person we know and we'll get an album together. And to me, that's not the way to do it. TikTok can be used as part of the strategy for developing an artist. So what you say to your artist is, okay, I'm loving these songs. Why don't you go put them on TikTok, play them, see what people think about them. But at the same time, go out, perform. Let's do some videos. Let's do some photos. Let's do all this while we're developing so we know what it's, what it's like to do a video, what it's like to do photos professionally, what it's like to do an interview with somebody. And um, at, the, at the same time, you're developing their music. You're helping them pull out what they want to say, making it more concise, making it more interesting, all of these things. So when they have their moment on TikTok, like Gail, they're unstoppable. They've got songs for days. They know how to perform. They're amazing in front of the camera. And it's like, here we go. That's artist development. Signing based on metrics is just competing with everybody else who's out there. And the dust isn't going to settle till after the deal's closed. And you don't even know what you signed. And then you've got to compete with Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran. You're not competing with TikTok anymore. You're competing with, the, with you know, you got to get on radio. So I, I find it to be, you know, who's doing that? And that's why I'm so proud of, of Gail in this moment, because she worked her butt off to get to where she is. She was not an overnight moment. She was not a plant. She's been working for three years since she was 14, since I met her, she worked harder than anyone I know. Sessions, double sessions, uh, COVID in her bedroom with her best friend, writing songs, performing, doing videos, 
photos. So when I hear this thing about her being a plant, it's like, oh no, she was so far from a plant. Uh, they were saying something on TikTok or that, and it, you know, it was just like, oh no, she's not an industry plant. She is, you know, in terms of, of Gail, TikTok was something that was so important in breaking her, but she's much more than a TikTok artist. She's had songs lined up that, you know, could be released now for months. So tell me what you saw in her at 14. Well, she stood up and she sang a few lines and I was so confused because number one, she was like so tall. And I think I was on the floor and I'm looking up at her and she's so intense and she's singing and she's so emotional in in the way she sings and the way she moves. And I was just like, what is going on? Who is this? So I was really like, oh, I don't know. I got to I got to make sure this girl really wants it. She says she wants it, but I'm not sure. So two weeks later, I called her up and I, I said, you know, I'm doing a, a writing camp. Why don't you come down? Uh, I'm going to put you in some sessions. And so she was very well spoken, very put together and very serious about this. So I put her in the room. I think it was Jimmy Robbins, like somebody, you know, some crazy talented person. She said later she was freaking out, but she didn't, she had poker face. Mm-hmm. She's like, okay. And I'm like, look at this girl, 14, unbelievable. So I just kept testing her and testing her. And she just looked at me, all right, like a gamer, you know, like I'm going, here I go. And I was like, this girl's incredible. I mean, the way she holds herself, the level of talent, the level of professionalism. I was like, I got to work with this girl. And that's basically what happened is I just could not believe the talent. And we spent a lot of time talking about what she wanted to say. And her mother is amazing. And her mother really raised her child to be exactly you know, who she is. Like if, if she wanted to do certain things, her mom didn't shut it down. She sort of listened to her and was like, all right, I've got this kind of wild spirit here. And how am I going to raise her? Am I going to tell her not to do certain things? Or am I going to give her the tools to do them safely. And, you know, and we spoke a lot about, you know, sex was a big thing with her and and sexuality. And it was funny because I was raised Roman Catholic. So there were times she would say things and, you know, I was like, wow, okay. But I am so much more evolved from my roots, you know, And, and I want people to express what they feel. I never want to censor it. Um, but there, there are times that maybe I've had to have a conversation with her, like, are you sure you want to say that? Or, you know, and I ultimately want her to say what she wants to say, but I think allowing her to tell her truth the way she wanted to, t- to say it and not being like, no, you can't say that or no, you, you know, cause I think other people had in the past and, um, just giving her that freedom to be the wild kind of stallion she is. It's been amazing to watch her develop. It really is. And that song, um, A, B, C, D, E, F, U, it is just so hooky. I got the sense in talking to Gail that a lot of work went into retuning and refining that song, um, reworking it to different formats. Tell me about that. Like, is that kind of like you're workshopping a song, basically, so that it's perfect? I don't think I have ever spent more time trying to get a production right or a thing right. I mean, my kid learned how to curse. (laughs) He's been hearing that song for two years. He was like, fuck you. And I'm like, no, uh uh-uh, you can't say it. I mean, I couldn't escape. It was just playing all the time. All happened the way it was supposed to happen because 
it, it took a while, but she also needed that time to continue to grow and develop. And, you know, she wrote the song when she was 15 with her best friend, Sarah Davis. I mean, what a great story. These two meet at a industry event. They're both songwriters. They, they you know, they, they get to be friends. And then they write this amazing song based on just their experiences and because they have this deep friendship and they know how to communicate with each other and they know each other and that's the way it should be. If those two hadn't met at an NSAI event, you wouldn't have that song. Hmm. They just met and there you go. How cool is that? I mean, when it's just amazing. It really is. And I also think because I sign things so organically, like I loved Sarah Davis. I thought she was amazing with Gail. I never tried to break the up. Let me put you with someone else. Hold on. Let me get you with this guy over here. He's had five big records. It's like, no, Sarah and you are awesome together. You need to continue to write. And she was signed a while ago, right? It's not on the, it's not on the heels of the success of this song. No, she was being developed and we were developing her. So it was independent first. And then this was her her release. So the whole idea was to develop her without the pressure of being inside the system where it's like, when's a single, what's it doing? Where's this, where's this, you know, the TikTok, the Spotify's what's going on. You know, it was sort of like, that was a very good just... Julie Greenwald impersonation. Oh, <laughs> Was that, I don't know. You know, it's so Pretty funny. Much. I really no, because Julie, like I'm kind of in awe of Julie. I just started to really know her. Well, listen, The music industry is tough. It has changed so much. And, and, and we, we as an industry have allowed technology to dictate the way we sign and the way we do business. And, you know, I, I have compassion for, for a lot of people on the inside because it's just overnight. You don't know what you have to do. And, I'm kind of sick of it. And that's why I, I wanted to build bridge. Cause I'm like, I'm done with technology telling me how to do business. So you're using I, I, the technology to find the people yes. who should be doing business together. Exactly. I'm like, you know what I, and I'm going to align myself with the industry. I'm not going to be, you know, speaking out and saying, we don't do anything with the industry. It's like, I want the creators to be noticed not just through TikTok, not just through all those things, but what about those kids out there that are just awesome, but don't have access? And and my app's going to be able to tell the industry, like, look at this guy. A lot of people love him in this community. We would never have met him because he lives in Nebraska. It's sort of the idol thing, but inside the app. And it's a safe community where creators can come and meet one another and, and get a mentoring session from, you know, a great, songwriter or producer and um but also get the access they need and to to work with one another and possibly be recognized and possibly down the line web three you know monetizing their work the way they want to work yeah so i'm excited about that i'm in the industry but i'm also creator so i see both i see both sides of the street yeah and i have compassion for both sides of the street i'm just trying to create solutions that work for everyone well, do you have to have like the talk with someone like Gail about how difficult and, you know, kind of gross the industry can be? 
I worry for, for her at times because, you know, she's a young girl. And I, I also know that her life will not never be the same in the sense that, you know, people are going to know her and it's not as easy now to, to go out and do what she wants to do. But I have someone who I love, Christina Russo, who used to work at um, Art House with me, um, has left to go on to manage her. Mm. And they have such a great relationship and Christina is so protective of her and they're just fantastic together. And she, um, Gail also has a great mom. She has great friends and having those people around her sort of patting her from some of the crazy. So I feel like I can sleep at night because I know (laughs) that she's being protected and that, um, you know, they, they try to have a Disney movie at the end of the day or something, trying to do something normal. And, I know that she has a great mom and um, great friends around her. So I think that's so important, you know. But if if I ever feel like she needs a little pep talk, uh, yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> I don't know if she'll want to hear from me, but... Um... I wanted to talk about your advocacy for songwriters. I'd previously had Dina LaPolt on this podcast, and we spoke about you know, why the songwriters always seem to get the short end of the stick. The DSPs, the Spotify's of the world, it seems like they're nickel and diming songwriters constantly. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's always this anger that I see on social media. What's happening? I think that, you know, there's a fundamental difference in the way technology looks at music and the way the music industry looks at music, you know, I think in their world, it should, it should almost be free. It's like, oh, here's the music. They kept the record labels in, in business. You know, they basically said here, we're going to, this is money for these masters and that's it. And they didn't really think about the song part of it. You know, they thought about the masters, the artists, but what about the songwriters? And I, I think, you know, at one point, I'm not even sure they ever wanted to pay anything you know, and this was like the deal they made. So here we are with, with songwriters now. Um, basically, you have to be a hit songwriter if you're going to make any money, because if you're waiting on Spotify to pay you royalties for that, it's going to be a really long time. I mean, what they pay is dismal. So now you've also got people having to try to get on the master side. So if I'm a songwriter and I'm developing somebody, now I have to look to get a piece of the master or somehow get onto the production because I've got to get money from that or I'm not going to be able to live unless I have songs on radio and now advertising's down from COVID. And, you know, so I think people will look, producers will say, well, you know, how about all those years when we didn't get royalties when songs were played on radio? So it's, it's this strange kind of like, remember that? Remember this? Well, you know, it's like, well, here you are now. What does it feel like, you know? And the reality is that the law, they look at it as it's a Band-Aid solution, everything. It's like, you got to go back and you've got to restructure the laws so that it's taking into account everything. Not just like, oh, well, this changed uh, since we last looked at the law. And, you know, it has to be a real approach to what it means to be a creator today and how they earn their money, whether they're a producer, whether they're a songwriter, whether they're an artist, or you're just going to have an industry full of people who are always looking to create hits 
And I think that's dangerous to music because then you're creating music in a certain way and not, not doing it because you're trying to express something, but because you're trying to fit into a box. Right. And that's scary to me. So, you know, I think the MLC and, and collecting these royalties is, is, a, is, is very important because we're going to get it into the, the creator's hands. We've got a lot of work to do in kind of showing the DSPs that, you know, it's not enough to just pay out um, on the master side. Care is a weird word in the music industry. We're a business. Right. They care. They care a little less about the songwriter. They care a little. I mean, this is, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of a weird word to use. What, what we really need to do is have respect, right? Just a mutual respect. Because if you want creators to continue to deliver for you, there needs to be a level of respect. And there is no respect when you're not paying your songwriters, when you're not saying, you know, without you, I wouldn't have this big hit. And that's keeping my doors open. So really what has to happen is, you know, it's more of a, are we going to stop and just be like, look, we're not doing this until we settle this. And that's a hard call because people have to work. Yeah. They have to bring home money. I don't know. It's going to have to take a real disruptive moment to fix. And so that's why I think, you know, the idea of creating a new way maybe of how we do things, maybe on the side of taking some of these walls down for creators and maybe the next generation will stand their ground more. I I don't know what to say. I mean, like at this point, if I was in a position where I was writing big, big songs right now and saw this, what would I do? It's an interesting question. You know, would I, would I burn it all to the ground? Like sit there and go like get 10 of my friends and say, let's just stop until they, and what does that really do? I don't know. It's a hard one. I don't have the answer, but it's still worth a good fight. Yeah, you're right. Um, Okay. Well, let's, um, let's wrap this up by uh, talking about bridge. Tell me about, you know, why, tell me about the genesis of bridge and where someone can find it and, you know, what its purpose is. So Bridge was brought to me by two kids from um, a school uh, who had kind of started with this idea that there could be a Tinder for songwriters. Mm. And it was it had already been out there in some variations. But I was more interested in, okay, I love this idea of getting creators to be able to access each other without going through a gatekeeper. Like, for example, I may be a manager or publisher, and I may have a beef with somebody who represents another songwriter. So I never put my songwriter with that songwriter. And that to me could be a missed opportunity. Or I'm somebody who's in Nebraska, and I I never leave my state. And I really want to work with other people. And I'm young, and I can't find anyone at my school how do I access somebody in a safe environment? So I thought a lot about the connection part. And for me, it wasn't enough just to go based on skill set, like, oh, you play piano, I write lyrics. Because there's something that A&R people do, they kind of take into consideration the personality of the creator, like is somebody very intense in the room, it would be better with someone who was more quiet and sort of more of an editor. And so we developed the psychometric survey based on psychology. 
which looks at, um, you know, your lifestyle, your work habits, how you view the world, how you think you are in the room. And that will be part of the algorithm. So it will match you based on your personality, your skill set, and where you live. And when you have a collaboration with somebody, you'll be able to rate that collaboration. But it'll all be private. And then that will further refine who you match with. All at the same time, creating a very safe and thoughtful community where you will be able to tell us what you're looking for, what you need. So it's not my community, it's their community. They're going to be the ones telling us what they want. And we'll be able to give them access to, you know, songwriting classes, critiques, hopefully writing workshops, all the things that that they need. Um, we'll have a publishing division, a record division, and we'll be able to share metrics with industry partners. We'll be able to tell our community about what's going on in the industry if they want to, you know, write to this or there's a pitch for this or a pitch for that and really democratize the way that that the industry is for creators. Um, You know, down the line, we'll get into Web3 and NFTs and all those things. But I think there's a lot we can do with aligning inside the industry to make sure that creators are heard and looked at if they're not found on TikTok or they're not found on Spotify and really nurturing that environment because nobody really does. It's always on a very like, oh, well, do they have hits? Do they have this? Do they have that? But sometimes people can't write hits unless you're, you're helping them. You're feeding them. You're listening to them. And at the very core, we hope that people will meet and be, be friends be part of a community where they can talk about things that they couldn't talk to with anyone else. I think it's important. Has it launched already? We're in beta right now. Okay. So um, we are about to launch the beta and the beta will be a very important process where we'll be able to see how effective the algorithm is for matching people. That's kind of our, our most viable product. And then also it will tell us what the community wants, what we're not giving to them inside the app, what they need. Um, and really listen and do some R&D while we're developing other features for the app and while we're looking at ways to monetize for these creators, whether it's in the traditional music industry or outside of that. Mm. And does it cost the creator anything to be a part of it? Join. There's no cost to the creator. The only thing that we will probably um, monetize is if we do special events or, you know, we have a guest speaker or something that's uh, a larger workshop or an educational thing. We don't want to tax the creator. Got it. It's only, you know, but we also, you know, we're running, we're running, we have to obviously bring money in in order to stay, stay, you know, viable, but we've raised around uh, $700,000. So our technology is is up and running. And are you a co-founder? What's your role? Yeah, I'm a co-founder and the CEO. And, and, and I just thought it was such an important thing to do because I think it's the future for uh, creators. I think you, you, you should be able to be scouted anywhere. And we have to figure out ways of, of taking those walls down between creators and the industry. And it's not just the tech that's been built for us by others, but tech that we build ourselves. You know, it's, this is industry aligned and in that the people that are, are running it are from the music industry. 
but it's a technology company. It was built by somebody, the CTO, who's built things for Google and Cobalt and different players like that. So in my mind, it's different and unique in that way because we're doing something that someone's going to build for us in the future anyway. We might as well do it ourselves. Amazing. Way to build out your portfolio, Kara. As always, <laughs> Kara, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Tune in next week for another episode of Variety Strictly Business. And thank you for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.